0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio.
1: Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's lease hath all too short a date. Sometime too hot, The eye of heaven shines and often is his gold complexion dimmed and every fair from fair sometime declines by chance or nature's changing course untrimmed but thy eternal summer shall not fade nor lose possession of that fair thou owest nor shall death boast Thou wanderest in his shade, when in eternal lines to time thou growest. So long as men can breathe, or eyes can see, so long lives this, and this gives life to thee.
2: Mm, hello! It's one of the simplest and best-known forms in all of poetry. And since the 13th century it's been the vehicle for some of the greatest expressions of love and other subjects in the history of thought. A sonnet, said the poet Dante Gabriel Rossetti, is a moment's monument. Who invented the sonnet? Who brought it to prominence? How has it changed over the years? And why does this form continue to be so compelling?" We're looking at the sonnet, today, on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. The sonnet. What a subject. What a curious phenomenon. When you stop and think about it, 14 lines, fine, 14 lines, that's it. Sometimes rhymed according to certain schemes, sometimes rhymed according to a different scheme, and more recently, not rhymed necessarily, iambic pentameter at the outset, a little less tied to that now, a simple form, very simple. And yet, here's a partial list of people who've written sonnets, Petrarch. Dante, Shakespeare, Sir Philip Sidney, Thomas Wyatt, Milton, Yeats, Auden, Frost, Lowell, Bishop, Philip Larkin, Spencer, Keats, Wordsworth, Rupert Brooke, Wallace Stevens, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, John Donne, Anne Sexton, Louise Gluck, Ezra Pound, Sylvia Plath, Rita Dove, Langston Hughes, Rilke, William Blake, Coleridge, John Berryman. Neruda wrote a hundred at least. Michelangelo wrote them, yes. That Michelangelo. T.S. Eliot even snuck one into the wasteland. I could go on a lot longer. Could go on for the whole hour. Just naming names, I created that list from memory, more or less. It's much harder to find a poet of significance in the past 500 years who never wrote a sonnet. Pope and Dryden, 18th century masters of the heroic couplet, didn't go for sonnets. More recently, H.D. avoided them and Marianne Moore seems not to have written one. E.E. Cummings, you might think, except that no, he did write sonnets. It's like an exercise that poets have been drawn to over and over for centuries. Why is that? We'll have some thoughts later in the show. But first, Let's catch you up on all of the history of literature news. We will have Mike Palindrome soon, I promise. Next week, I think. And it turns out we are close, but not quite at the million download mark. Stats are a little slippery. Trying to nail that down, I'm going to err on the side of conservatism here and say that we're not quite there. Remember, a million downloads was my goal, and yet I find myself still looking ahead. We won't stop yet. Maybe we need to get to 200 shows first or something. I don't know. Actually, try to figure it out. (laughs) There may be a new podcast in the works. We might be resurrecting the old Jack Wilson show, which was a strange little beast, a beastie. Or we might just keep going forever or until we get our dream guest. Can you guess who that is? If you're the dream guest, raise your hand or send me an email. We'd like to have you on soon. I don't even know what we're waiting for now. This is all getting very strange. Let's just start the show. The sonnet after this.
0: Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hatcast. Follow the Cat in the Hatcast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hatcast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts.
2: We know when the sonnet was invented and who invented it, but I'm actually going to start at the end. Whenever we talk about how things change, I can sense people jumping ahead. How do things evolve? We promise that. And some of you out there start thinking creatively. The wheels start turning. You start thinking, hey, 14 lines, that's been done to death. How about a sonnet with 13 lines? Well, guess what? It's been done. Or 15 lines? Robert Lowell beat you to it. And so did Shakespeare, for that matter. And you keep going, well, how about a sonnet where every line is one word? That actually is an entire form. A subcategory of sonnets called a word sonnet. How about one where there are no words at all? A wordless sonnet. That is surely innovative. Well, yes, it is. And the poet Mary Ellen Solt Has already done it.
0: How about a satirical sonnet, you say? A sonnet that explodes the idea of
2: sonnet writing. Take it away, Shakespeare. Oh, I'm sorry, I I wasn't talking to you. I was talking to Shakespeare. Here's sonnet 130, read by diehard supervillain Hans Gruber.
3: My mistress' eyes are nothing like the sun. Coral is far more red than her lips red, If snow be white, why, then her breasts are done, If hairs be wires, black wires grow on her head. I have seen roses damasked red and white, But no such roses see I in her cheeks. And in some perfumes is there more delight Than in the breath that from my mistress reeks. I love to hear her speak, Yet well I know that music hath a far more pleasing sound. I grant I never saw a goddess go, My mistress, when she walks, Treads on the ground. And yet, by heaven, I think my love, as rare as any, she belied with false compare. Mm.
2: Of course, that's Alan Rickman, the actor. We heard Sonnet 18 at the start of the show, read by Harriet Walter. But you're thinking, no, 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 I can do better. I'm still keeping alive this idea that I will innovate a brand new sonnet a whole new style. How about dueling sonnets? That's already been done, I'm afraid.
0: Well, how about a sonnet in search of an author?
2: William Carlos Williams wrote just such a poem. Ghost sonnets? Done. Chinese sonnets? Done. Sonnet cycles? Done, done, done. Holy sonnets? Done. By done. in fact, John Dunn, that is. How about a sonnet where every line is a sonnet? Done. A cubist sonnet? Let me introduce you to Miss Gertrude Stein and her poem, Susie Asado. How about 15 sonnets that are linked by the repetition of the final line of one sonnet as being the initial line of the next and the final line of that sonnet as being the initial line of the previous and the last sonnet contains all of the repeated lines of the previous 14 sonnets in the same order in which they appeared. That's not only been done, it's another subcategory. It's called a crown of sonnets. Marilyn Nelson wrote a good one. How about this idea? You decide you're going to write More sonnets than anyone. You write five sonnets a day. At your death, you leave behind a half a million sonnets. 500,000 sonnets that tell the entire story of your life. Sorry, my ambitious friend. It's a great idea, but you will be the second person to do this. How about this? two lovers meet. They start exchanging lines. Their lines form a perfect sonnet, including their final two lines to one another, which they trade back and forth. And together, they complete their sonnet with a brilliant final couplet. It's a marvelous idea. And it's how Romeo met Juliet 400 and some years ago. The point is that the sonnet has a rich tradition. It's a tradition that might seem daunting, might seem like kind of a straitjacket, not only for aspiring poets, but for readers as well. Why do we have to follow this structure or live within these boundaries? Why can't we be free? But poets already have shown how free you can be within the sonnet. So don't think it's a form of which it's your job to demonstrate the weakness. Don't think you can come up with something to demonstrate that sonnets no longer matter. Sonnets are going to outlast us all. You cannot defeat the sonnet, and you will not. It's better to jump in and celebrate this form, not to worship at its feet, but to explore its many facets and watch the best poetic minds and see what they can do with it and learn from their examples and delight in all of it. Let's delight in the sonnet, not as an old stodgy thing, but as an existing, exciting, dynamic thing. The word sonnet means little song in Italian. Let's sing the praises of this little song. Let's sing a song of sonnets. Hey, maybe that's our innovation. We could sing a sonnet. Well, by now, you know how this works. Take it away, Rufus Wainwright.
1: When in disgrace with fortune in men's
3: eyes
1: I'll be beweep my outcast day In trouble deaf heaven with my bootless cries Look myself and
2: curse my face. Mm, that's enough to give you a taste. That's from Shakespeare's Sonnet 29 from the album Take All My Loves, Nine Shakespeare Sonnets, in which Mr. Wainwright sets Shakespeare's sonnets to music. How about this? I'm still trying to find the innovation. How about we take pop songs like Taylor Swift or Beyonce and turn those lyrics into sonnets? Actually, there's a Tumblr that does that. Or an automatic sonnet generator. We could program one where someone could plug in a few words and our program would kick out a sonnet. That exists, too. I'll have one about the podcast at the end of the show. How about we take tweets and turn those into sonnets? It's already been done. How about we write sonnets and then we cut them up and we rearrange the words and fragments into new poems? That is a 50-year-old tradition, my friend. The sonnet sees you. The sonnet anticipates your every move. How about we write a story about a poet? A story that imagines that poetry is like Hollywood, and a poet is taking meetings and trying to get his poem produced. Directors compete to make a movie out of his poem. Martin Amis already wrote that story. It's called Career Move. And the poem that is the toast of Hollywood is called Sonnet. Of course, you could get back at Martin Amis tweaking poetry this way by writing a poem called The Novelist. Except that W. H. Auden already wrote such a poem. It was, of course, a sonnet. Let's stop this fanciful business and turn back to the history of this glorious form, Understand that there have been as many creative minds trying to turn the form upside down and inside out and stretched in one direction and stretched back in another. Compressed, expanded, blown up, blown out. Crossed out, crossed up, jacked up, knocked down, kicked around, exalted, revered, examined, discarded. Everything, it seems, but ignored. Hardly ever ignored. Let's look at the history so we know where the sonnet came from. We already know where it's going. It's zooming into the future. In fact, it's probably there already, waiting for us to catch up. The history of the sonnet after this. Sonnet comes from sometime around the years 1222 to 1225, and comes from Sicily, from the court of Frederick II, the Holy Roman Emperor. Frederick II was an interesting guy, a great fan of the arts and a great patron of poets, who wrote in a variety of languages, Sicilian, of course, and Greek, as you might expect, but also Arabic and other languages too. One of these poets was a notary, which is a little more than what we call a notary in America today. It's closer to a lawyer. In any case, this lawyer-poet was named Giacomo da Lentini, and he struck the poetic equivalent of a mine of gold or a gushing oil well. Fourteen lines was his poem. Apparently, it was a mashup of two forms, a pair of quatrains followed by a pair of triplet stanzas which perhaps came from a Sicilian folk song form he had recently heard. That's one theory for these earliest sonnets, that it was a way of saying something and then singing it. I'm ordinarily not a big fan of rhyme scheme. It always seems to me kind of boring to talk about and secondary to poetry. It turns poetry into crossword puzzles or sudokus or something, and I I don't like that. I don't care what the degree of difficulty is. I care about the words and the way they make me think and the way they make me feel. But with sonnets, I'm going to make an exception because there's something magnificent about the way this particular form has ignited such a wildfire of creativity across countries and through the centuries. So I'm interested in how the form changed because you can see creative minds wrestling with the differences. Sometimes they innovate, sometimes they stick to tradition. Both can be beautiful, and I wouldn't say one is more beautiful than the other. I don't care about innovation for the sake of innovation, and I don't give a lot of extra credit for innovation, just as I don't give a lot of credit for following a form slavishly. It's within the form employed by the poet where I look for beauty. But let's play along and see what poets we're working with. The purest and earliest sonnets, the Dalentini form, was eight and six, or four-four-three three, if you like. There's what's called a volta or turn that comes between lines eight and nine. Dalentini wrote in Sicilian, the next big development came when a man called Guitone d'Arezzo took the sonnet into Tuscany and started writing sonnets in Tuscan language, about 300 of them. These were popular with Tuscan poets, and his example was quickly followed by Guido Cavalcanti and Dante Alighieri. We're into the 14th century now, and one of the great sonnet writers of all time, Petrarch, picked up on the form and wrote his beautiful sonnets to Laura. A hundred years later, Tuscans were still writing sonnets, including... The artist Michelangelo. And then the sonnets caught on in England. Some English poets used the 4433 structure, 8 and 6. Others developed something new, 4442. Now, instead of eight lines with a turn, heading into the final six, now we had essentially 12 lines of development, and then a strong reversal, a strong closing couplet. Later in the show, we'll have some speculation on why this change happened and backing up a bit, why 14 lines was chosen at all. These early English sonneteers included Thomas Wyatt, writing around 1542, and Henry Howard, right around the same time. Both of these men published translations of Petrarch, Petrarchian sonnets, and original sonnets written in English. A generation or two later, from 1580 to 1610, we might say, saw a great flourishing of sonnets. The great poet and classic classicist Ben Jonson didn't write sonnets, but just about everyone else of this generation did. Edmund Spencer, Philip Sidney, Sir Walter Raleigh, and, of course, William Shakespeare, who might single-handedly deserve credit for the sustained success of the sonnet in English. Had he never written a play, He might not be quite a household name, but I think he'd still be quite famous for these sonnets. We've heard a couple already. Let's hear another. Then come back with the rest of our sonnet story. This is Sonnet 116, read by Juliet Stevenson.
4: Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments love is not love which alters when it alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove oh no it is an ever fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken it is the star to every wandering bark whose worths unknown although his height be taken Love's not time's fool, though rosy lips and cheeks within his bended sickle's compass come. Love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. If this be error, and upon me proved, I never writ, nor no man ever loved.
3: Mm.
2: Wasn't that good? I'm tempted to just keep reading sonnets. There are so many good ones. But as we get more into the innovations, I think the oral versions of sonnets start to lose some of their power. They become a visual medium as well as an oral medium. The handsome, robust shape of the words on the page, the rough symmetry and solidity of the way the 14 lines of iambic pentameter look starts to be different. Now a sonnet, today a sonnet could look thin, almost wan, Or jagged edges look different when the lines are of different lengths and the rhyme scheme changes to end rhymes are different. They behave differently when the lines overflow and you see the rhyme. Your eye catches it before it returns to the start of the next line. But the ear might not detect it as an end rhyme when it's read aloud. Milton started running the lines over. Milton also changed the subject from love to whatever was on his mind, including politics. John Dunn was another one from this period. We're jumping back into the history now. John Den, sorry, John Dunn wrote about God and other metaphysical ideas. There was a gap in development. As I mentioned, Pope and Dryden dominated everything with their heroic couplets. But then, at the turn of the 19th century, The romantics picked it back up. Blake wrote one at a very young age, probably as a teenager and possibly even before. His was very unusual. One line ended with the word the and another ended with the word with, which as far as I know, not even Milton or Dunn ever tried. Wordsworth credited Milton's sonnets with leading him to pick up the form as he recognized its power and beauty as a form and saw the possibilities of applying this form to subjects other than love. Here's one I've always liked about modernity and a nostalgia for simpler times. The World is Too Much With Us by William Wordsworth The world is too much with us, late and soon, getting and spending, we lay waste our powers, little we see in nature that is ours. We have given our hearts away, a sordid boon, the sea that bears her bosom to the moon, The winds that will be howling at all hours And are upgathered now like sleeping flowers. For this, for everything, we are out of tune. It moves us not. Great God, I'd rather be a pagan, Suckled in a creed outworn. So might I, standing on this pleasant pleasantly, Have glimpses that would make me less forlorn. Have sight of Proteus, RISING FROM THE SEA, OR HEAR OLD TRITON, BLOW HIS WREATHED HORN. HERE'S ANOTHER GREAT Wordsworthian SONNET, COMPOSED UPON WESTMINSTER BRIDGE, SEPTEMBER 3, 1802. EARTH HAS NOT ANYTHING TO SHOW MORE FAIR, DULL WOULD HE BE OF SOUL WHO COULD PASS BY, A SIGHT SO TOUCHING IN ITS MAJESTY. This city now doth, like a garment, wear the beauty of the morning, silent, bare, ships, towers, domes, theatres, and temples lie open unto the fields and to the sky, all bright and glittering in the smokeless air. Never did sun more beautifully steep in its first splendor, valley, rock, or hill. Ne'er saw I never felt a calm so deep the river glideth at his own sweet will. Dear God, the very houses seem asleep, And all that mighty heart is lying still. The other romantics followed Wordsworth. Coleridge wrote sonnets too, and the later romantics, Byron and Keats, went back to the Italian 8-6 form for some of them. I wish we had time to read all of these. I love Keats's Bright Star and On First Looking into Chapman's Homer and Ozymandias and England in 1819 by Shelley. The Victorians, moving on, the Victorians were crazy about sonnets, including Elizabeth Barrett Browning, whose book, Sonnets from the Portuguese, is a classic. We'll read one here. It's famous for its brilliant opening line, How Do I Love Thee? By Elizabeth Barrett Browning How do I love thee? Let me count the ways I love thee to the depth and breadth and height my soul can reach When feeling out of sight for the ends of being an ideal grace I love thee to the level of every day's most quiet need By sun and candlelight I love thee freely as men strive for right I love thee purely as they turn from praise I love with a passion put to use in my old griefs, and with my childhood's faith. I love thee with a love I seem to lose with my lost saints. I love thee with the breath, smiles, tears of all my life, and, if God choose, I shall but love thee better after death. We're fully in the 19th century now, and we find sonnets everywhere from George Meredith to Gerard Manley Hopkins to Walt Whitman to Edgar Allan Poe. Herman Melville wrote a sonnet. It was about a shark, and it was 16 lines. <laughs> two more two more than was conventional, and somehow that just seems perfect for Melville. Moving into the 20th, The German poet Rilke was a great practitioner of sonnets, including one of my favorite poems of all time, Archaic Torso of Apollo, which changed my life. Here it is, Archaic Torso of Apollo, by Rainier Maria Rilke. We cannot know his legendary head with eyes like ripening fruit, and yet his torso is still suffused with brilliance from inside like a lamp in which his gaze, now turned to low, gleams in all its power. Otherwise the curved breast could not dazzle you so, nor could a smile run through the placid hips and thighs to that dark center where procreation flared. Otherwise this stone would seem defaced beneath the translucent cascade of the shoulders and would not glisten like a wild beast's fur would not, from all the borders of itself, burst like a star. For here there is no place that does not see you. You must change your life. So good. We might need to do a show on Rilke. Here's a masterful sonnet by Yeats, Leda and the Swan. This one alludes to the Greek myth, where Zeus takes the form of the Swan and seduces Leta which eventually results in Helen. When you think about it, it's a pretty powerful idea, shocking and horrifying all at once. Yeats captures its majesty and terror. Leda and the Swan by William Butler Yeats A sudden blow, the great wings beating still above the staggering girl, her thighs caressed by the dark webs, her nape caught in his bill. He holds her helpless breast, upon his breast how can those terrified vague fingers push the feathered glory from her loosening thighs and how can body laid in that white rush but feel the strange heart beating where it lies a shudder in the loins engenders there the broken wall the burning roof and tower and agamemnon dead being so caught up, so mastered by the brute blood of the air, did she put on his knowledge with his power before the indifferent beak could let her drop? Hmm. Let's turn to Robert Frost, who has a nice sonnet. It's a 33332 format. Acquainted with the Night. By Robert Frost I have been one acquainted with the night I have walked out in rain And back in rain I have outwalked the furthest city light I have looked down the saddest city lane I have passed by the watchman on his beat And dropped my eyes, unwilling to explain I have stood still and stopped the sound of feet when far away an interrupted cry came over houses from another street, but not to call me back or say goodbye, and further still, at an unearthly height, one luminary clock against the sky, proclaimed the time was neither wrong nor right. I have been one, acquainted with the night." That's still pretty traditional, and with that wonderful Frostian musicality. Here's another one from the 20th century, so unlike a traditional sonnet that I didn't even notice that it was one when we discussed it last time here on the History of Literature podcast. It was in our dad poetry episode, Robert Hayden's Those Winter Sundays. Those Winter Sundays by Robert Hayden. Sundays, too, my father got up early and put his clothes on in the blue-black cold. Then, with cracked hands that ached from labor and the weekday weather, made banked fires blaze. No one ever thanked him. I'd wake and hear the cold splintering, breaking. When the rooms were warm, he'd call, and slowly I would rise and dress, fearing the chronic angers of that house speaking indifferently to him who had driven out the cold and polished my good shoes as well. What did I know, what did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? Hmm, no end rhymes there, very modern. And then a poet like William Carlos Williams comes along and upends the form, he uses short lines, they're not rhyming, and the stanzas are three, two, three, four, two, it adds up to fourteen, but not in the usual pattern. And if we didn't get the hint, the poem is called Sonnet in Search of an Author. Sonnet in Search of an Author by William Carlos Williams. Nude bodies, like peeled logs, sometimes give off a sweetest odor. Man and woman under the trees, in full excess, matching the cushion of aromatic pine drift fallen, threaded with trailing woodbine, a sonnet might be made of it. Might be made of it, odor of excess, odor of pine needles, Odor of peeled logs, odor of no odor other than trailing woodbine that has no odor. Odor of a nude woman, sometimes odor of a man. But even though modernism exploded the sonnet, that doesn't mean that sonnets can't still be written in traditional ways. Here's one by Langston Hughes. Listen to how he's still loyal to the form. I think of this as being like Picasso, drawing a beautiful naturalistic drawing, a perfect representation of reality, a kind of throwback before the innovation, the abstraction, the more visionary work. This is Sonnet 20 by Langston Hughes. Poor soul, the center of my sinful earth, my sinful earth, these rebel powers array. Why dost thou pine within and suffer dearth, Painting thy outward walls so costly gay? Why so large cost, having so short a lease, Dost thou upon thy fading mansion spend? Shall worms, inheritors of this excess, Eat up thy charge? Is this thy body's end? Then, Soul, live thou upon thy servant's loss, and let that pine to aggravate thy store. By terms divine and selling hours of dross, within be fed, without, be rich no more. So shalt thou feed on death that feeds on men, and death once dead, there's no more dying then. Modern poets, contemporary poets, sonnets are still being written. I think the form hits the right sweet spot. It's difficult enough. It has enough structure that it's a challenge. But it's loose enough to allow creativity. You can feel good about filling that many lines, finding that many rhymes if you're using rhyme. It's hard to know when to begin and when to end. What's a thought? How long is a thought? Who knows? Is it short? Is it long? A sonnet tells you. Ah, 14 lines sufficient if you can fill it. (laughs) But it's not so overwhelmingly bizarre or challenging that the form threatens to push you around. Readers know the form, it's familiar, but it doesn't read like a trick. It reads like a good length for a poem, a kind of natural weight and heft. It occupies our attention. And by now, of course, we're well trained to read poems of this length. We know it's going to end. We know it will have a turn at some point. We have some expectations. And the poem might meet them, which is satisfying. Or it might overturn them, which is also satisfying. The poem as a form is neither too long nor too short. It's the Goldilocks of poetry. It still doesn't answer the question, why 14 lines in the first place? Why did it catch on? Why not 10? Why not 12? Why not 16? I've heard it speculated that Dalentini was writing at the same time that Arabic numbers were being imported into Sicily. And there's some kind of theory of the forms or harmonious forms going on. And I heard this a few years ago on a radio show and I've never been able to quite figure out what this means. The idea is that 14 is a harmonious to it mathematically. It's somehow a beautiful number. Something about 8 plus 6, which I think reduces to 4 followed by 3. I don't follow it other than maybe it's what builders use. 4 plus 3, a square and a triangle. The start of the base of a pyramid. I tried to look this up I heard that Fibonacci was attached to it. He was the mathematician who made a sequence in which every number is the sum of the two numbers that precede it. So if you start with zero and one, you would have zero, one, one, because zero plus one equals one. But then you'd have two, because one plus one equals two. And then you'd get three, because two plus one equals three, and so on. Five, eight, thirteen, twenty one. I don't know how that gets you to 14 exactly. I did learn that there's such a thing called a Fibonacci sonnet in which you follow the Fibonacci numbering system for sentences. The first sentence has one word, then two, then three, then five, and so on. And you fill 14 lines with your sentences. I think you go up to 21 word sentences and then you go back down to one. There are examples of this online. The Fibonacci sonnet. Math fans you're welcome. So is there any kind of natural reason? I couldn't figure out the builder one, the ideal form one, the harmony of the forms one, but hey, 16 seems harmonious, doesn't it? A perfect square. 10 has a beautiful symmetry to it. 9 is practically a legendary number, a hall of fame number. 7 is everyone's favorite lucky number. 12 is the number of disciples. And 13 is is the number of disciples plus Jesus? Why 14? I do like the idea that 14, I've heard this one as well, that you need to think of it like a seesaw. 14 gives you lots of possibilities, not because it's balanced, but because it isn't. 12, on the other hand, cries out to be 6 and 6 or 444. Four, four. But 14, how do you divide that? 7 and 7 doesn't work naturally. Though the poet John Clare tried it, he liked those the best. <laughs> he also used to use seven pairs of two, which hardly anyone else did. Most people end up with the seesaw eight and six, four, 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 two, five, five, two, ten, two, three, 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 two. Something's unbalanced there. Maybe there's a creative tension that comes out of the lack of balance. As I mentioned, the strongest case seems to be that at the beginning, it was that there were two Italian forms already, the octave and the sestet, eight lines and six lines. And Dallentini just put them together, peanut butter into his chocolate, and vice versa. But that doesn't explain why 14 lines in this form took off so sharply. Or why it's endured for so long. There's some kind of speculation. I read this in a Robert Haas book called Theory of Forms. What is it? Let me get the title. A Little Book on Form, An Exploration into the Formal Imagination of Poetry. In there, he repeats some speculation that the sonnet replicates the human face Apparently, the human face, in its ideal form, has a proportion of four to three. The forehead, eyes, and nose take up four-sevenths of the face, the upper four-sevenths. The lips and chin take up the bottom three-sevenths, at least in beautiful people. A sonnet, it is speculated, is therefore like staring into the eyes of a lover for the first eight lines then pressing your lips to hers or his. For the final six. Is that possible? (laughs) I guess it's possible. It might play into it. When it comes to numbers and the way they feel, there are a whole lot of things it could be. Would I say that's the only reason that a sonnet is like a face? Probably not. Here's an explanation I like a little better. I like the idea that eight and six builds up and gets quicker. Eight lines develops a pattern, feels weighty, maybe four pairs or two sets of four. It's like a roller coaster chugging up its track, the beginning of a journey, the long part of the journey, and then there's a turn. And the six lines goes faster. The roller coaster rushes down or... The journey, you turn around and you're returning home. It's always a little faster to come home, isn't it? So maybe that's why 14 works for us. Eight is a little on the heavy side. Those are the days in school. Six, a little on the quick side. The sprint home. It's the opposite of plodding. Six, it's big enough to be substantial, yet it still feels spry. In the Italian version, There are two rhymes in the eight in the two quatrains but three rhymes three rhyming pairs in the six. Again, does that convey a certain lightness? A certain feeling of relief? Is that the skipping home to get three different rhymes in the final six lines after having only two rhymes in the eight? And There's the English version, four, 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 two. Bang, it snaps shut. The couplet snaps it shut tight. That final couplet is like the loud crack of a firework as the colorful lights fade into the night sky, leaving us with our changed thoughts. A great wrapping up, a summary, a twist. When English sonnets fail, it's usually because this final couplet doesn't measure up. The firework is a dud. And what about all the other forms? The 15 lines, Robert Lowell did this, with the 15th line commenting on the act of writing the sonnet. Or 13 lines, sonnets designed to emphasize our fractured world, our disjunctive world, the impossibility of completion. Or what about the one-word lines, the word sonnets? You can see now why the sonnet has been called a billowy tent. It looks like a solid structure. It might even be tethered with something like four corners. But it is not a rigid hut or a box. The sides are as sheer as silk, and they stretch and blow in the wind, sometimes in, sometimes out. Sometimes holding fast, sometimes curling up to the sky. At this point, we have transcended whatever power the 14 line verse originally had. A poet today is not just using the number 14 because it's good and it works and it's a good number. He or she uses the number 14 because Shakespeare did too, and all the thousands of other poets who came before. The poet picks up the pen and writes 14 lines because the sonnet form is there. If it were 13, he or she would do that. It's a way of incorporating the history of poetry into your poem, yet also creating something new. It puts you squarely in a tradition and yet allows you to be original. I suggested at the beginning that there isn't a way to be original with a sonnet, and maybe there isn't, at least with respect to form, There's a wordless sonnet after all. How are you going to top that? But who cares about getting weirder and weirder when there's room for the content to be original and there's room to be original in the fusion of content and form. The world could use a little less arguing, a little less selfishness, a little less ego, The world could use a little more reflection, a little more purity of expression, a little more considered thought, a little more artistry, a little more quiet ambition, a little more love. So write your sonnet. We have a lot of them already, but that doesn't matter. Clearly, we need a few more okay there we go that's going to do it for this episode of the history of literature or almost do it guess what i mentioned this at the beginning i promised it i'm gonna fulfill my promises there is a sonnet generator online which will create a sonnet for you if you plug in some nouns Well, I tried it out with the podcast, and here is what I got.
3: Oh, to the podcast, a sonnet by Jack, my rich podcast. (laughs) You inspire me to write. I love the way you inform and delight, invading my mind
2: day and through the night, always dreaming about the great fortnight. (laughs)
3: Let me compare you to a humble crust. You are more modest and more ambitious. Hard heat toasts the meek relics of August, and Summertime has
2: the golden delicious. How do I love you? Let me count the ways. I love your auspicious friendly and smart. Wanting your unusual fills my days. My love for you is the zealous upstart. Now I must away with a worthwhile heart. Remember my plain words whilst we're apart. Hmm. Did you catch that? (laughs) The first quatrain isn't too bad. My rich podcast. Well, the title. I don't know if you could hear any of it. I should have had subtitles. (sighs) Ode to the podcast. A sonnet by Jack. My rich podcast. You inspire me to write. I love the way you inform and delight. Invading my mind day and through the night. Always dreaming about the great fortnight. That's not too bad. Then it starts to go off the rails. Let me compare you to a humble crust. (laughs) You are more modest and more ambitious. Hard heat toasts the meek frolics of August. And summertime has the golden delicious. And then things start to get strange. How do I love you? Let me count the ways. That's basically plagiarism. I love your auspicious, friendly and smart, huh? Makes no sense. Wanting your unusual fills my days. I kind of like that line, actually. My love for you is the zealous upstart. Now, I must away with a worthwhile heart. Remember my plain words. Whilst we're apart. <sighs> With all due respect to our computer overlords, it's an awful poem. Maybe you can do better. Write an ode to the podcast and maybe I'll read a few in an upcoming episode. And if you'd like to contact me, you can do so at jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com or on Twitter at the jack wilson. that's J-A-C-K-E, you can support the show at patreon.com literature or historyofliterature.com shop. Here's one last sonnet and then we'll conclude. It's a word sonnet. If you are paying attention, you'll know that that is 14 lines of one word each. Here we go. I am Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Not bad, right? You're welcome, dear listeners, for that word sonnet. And now I'm going to sign off. It may so- sound a little familiar, but now that you know that my sign. Sorry, <laughs> getting my tongue twisted. Now that you know that my sign off is a sonnet, a revered, a vaunted sonnet, a relative of all those wonderful poems from the past seven centuries or so, it may never strike you the same way again. Is it a sentence or is it a sonnet? I'll never tell. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.